have not spoken to many Tottenham fans or journalists who cover women's football and you intersect that Venn diagram. So thank you for coming into the football library. You do get your laminated football library card. Oh, brilliant. Oh, that's great. And uh, yeah, it's good to find my place in that Venn diagram as well. I'm glad to be of use. Are there any Spurs affiliated players who broadcast in the women's football sphere? Well, Jermaine Genus did, didn't he, for a bit. He was on um, Channel 4's coverage of Euro 2017, um, which was really good coverage. Channel 4 did a really good job. Jermaine did a really good job. I'm not not sure he's done so much recently. I can't think of others, but I do think it is going to become very, very quickly next season a lot more of a crossover, yeah, between, you know, quite rightly, women's football being discussed on on mainstream shows, as we're seeing already more. You know, I've seen a bit of that on Football Focus. I've just heard Five Live. I've just... They've just been talking about you know the Women's Champions League on, on Sunday on, on their coverage ahead of tonight's Chelsea-Arsenal game. I'm speaking to you kind of just before that kicks off on, on, on a Wednesday night. Um, so I think we're gonna, it's going to become more commonplace where pundits are going to have to um, kind of find out quickly, learn on the job. Because as I found myself in the situation four years ago, I really didn't know anything about the women's game other than Chelsea and Arsenal, two, two very good clubs in London. I have a, about two months on you because I started, I lived down in Wimbledon and Rains Park for a couple of years. So I was able to walk or get the train to Kingsmeadow and watch Chelsea Woman. And I'm not surprised that uh, we speak on the Wednesday, which is four days before the Women's UCL final. Are you covering it there or are you going off tube? I won't be there and I won't be commentating on it. I, I'd love to have found a way to get out there. Uh, obviously, even in non-COVID times, it would have been tricky getting accreditation for UA for events. The Champions League finals, whether in the men's or women's game, is is not easy. And obviously, the BBC will have a presence there. Whether I'd have got out there in a non-COVID era for BBC London, quite possibly. I mean, I worked on the men's Champions League final that Tottenham were in two years ago. I worked oh, on sorry. the Chelsea one in in 2012 yes yeah, exactly yeah I tried to forget that 2019 final mm. in a personal capacity um and yeah I'd like to think we'd, we'd have looked to cover it if things were a little bit less restricted um than they are right now I don't imagine we'll be going to well it's looking like Portugal um isn't it for the men's now I don't think we'll be sending to that as BBC London um there will be a BBC presence there of course yeah. uh, but in normal times yeah I think we'd have me or a colleague would have been uh, in Gothenburg and hopefully in, in well, what would have been Istanbul um, for those Champions League finals. But yeah, I mean, what, what we have done, and that's kind of how I found myself. I mean, I had worked on women's FA Cup finals when I worked for BBC Sports. Since moving to BBC London, I, I kind of realised oh, we were only really covering Champions League games uh, for the women's the women's competition, um, you know, that would often, well, in the early days it was Arsenal and then more frequently really it's just been Chelsea. And and, and I got to that stage in 2017 when I realised, uh, you know, I would kind of go along to um, Wheatsheaf Park as it was then where Chelsea were playing and, and we would, Emma Hayes would be brilliant to come and speak to us an hour and a half before kickoff usually, wow. you know, which doesn't certainly doesn't happen in the men's game and do us uh, kind of as live as we call it, a couple of questions um, but I thought, well, look, other than covering Chelsea in these big matches, I haven't really paid attention to women's football. And I, I mean, I've, I've said this to so many people there. Anyone who's heard an interview with me before is probably bored of hearing it. But I love football at every level. And I, you know, I, much as Tottenham men are the club I've grown up 
supporting it's where my passion is i try and go and watch as much football as i can which is harder now with two kids and, and work as well but i'd only ever go on and, and watch men's teams you know or groundhopper as they say so i would go and watch you know vcd play at oakwood or i would go and watch bromley play at hayes lane and i thought well why haven't i gone to watch crystal palace women who also play at hayes lane or charlton athletic women who also play at oakwood who might because... learn today, by the way, Charlton Athletic used to be Croydon. Well, yes, they did. As I found out, well, I mean, they were born out of Croydon yeah. in the year 2000, a hostile takeover, um, which Debbie Bampton, the player manager of Croydon, vociferously objected to and resigned in protest, as did Ken Jarvie, the, the owner of Croydon. But the players of Croydon, in the majority, voted it through, and that takeover took place. Now, Charlton, those do not claim... Croydon's history. Uh, I've checked that with them. So they don't lay claim to those FA Cups won by Croydon in 1996 and 2000, and they don't lay claim to the Premier League titles won by Croydon. So although they were formed out of Croydon, Charlton consider themselves to be a separate club and to have won the FA Cup in 2005. And those Croydon wins... Uh, remain with Croydon and a club has just reformed. Croydon women has just reformed and they consider themselves to be the, you know, the original Croydon reawakened and they lay claim to those uh, women's FA Cups. And I, but, you know, we consider that Manchester United women are, are reformed, having laid dormant for many, many years and then come back ahead of the 2018-19 season. So I don't really see how we could necessarily object to... Um, Croydon doing the same. Yeah. But yeah, you are right. Charlton were born, Charlton women were born out of Croydon women. Which I only learned because I looked. Uh, in the absence of a particular book on the subject, uh, I went to the, the well-known encyclopedia online and looked at all the winners um, that I wanted to quiz you about because you, along with Patricia Gregory, have written a history of the Women's FA Cup final published by the History Press. Um, is it a feminist work, either explicitly or implicitly? A feminist book? Yes. Um, I, I don't quite know. I, don't, I, I wouldn't entirely know how to quantify it. I don't think it is in that... I don't think it is explicitly. And, and, and what I tried to steer clear of, actually, as far as possible, in it... I mean, you could write tomes and the inequality debate and you know issues in football and and you probably should but what i wanted this book to be and what i set out for it to be is really a record of those cup finals that so many of us know virtually nothing about the women's fa cup final and i just thought you know i've got reams of books in in my study here recording the men's men's football history and a lot of them about the fa cup and team lineups from the 1870s and every fact you could hope to know and I just thought, well, no one seems to have looked... Well, no, I mean, plenty of people have looked, actually, you know, but no one's brought it all together. So I went to Patricia, who I used to work with at BBC Sport, who was one of those brilliant people who set up the WFA in 1969 and put the pressure on the FA to overturn the ban on women playing that has stood since 1921. And one of the first things they did was to set up the Women's FA Cup, the Mighty Challenge Trophy, as it was called then, I looked through every newsletter that she still had, WFA newsletter, every programme that she still had. I looked through the British newspaper archives for every bit of information I could find. Patricia put me in touch with dozens of players and managers and journalists and writers. You know, just here and there, we found bits of information that we could find and brought it all together. So it's a massive team effort. 
and every single you know I've tried to thank as many as I can remember in the book and apologies to anyone I missed out because it was just find a fact here find a fact there you know whatever we could find and there's still more to find but this is the most complete record there has ever been now back to your original question it, it can't help but be implicitly a feminist work because there's so so few women's sports books let alone football books and this is the first one that I'm aware of about the women's FA Cup um, and I'm still getting the message here in 2021 from bookshops and from some publishers that people don't want to read books about women's sport. And that's why they don't want to put them on the shelves as such. That's why they're not going to put in an order for them. So quite clearly, there's a lot of work to be done there because I, I have no doubt that people do want to read about women's sport and that people want to find out more and that you know that the hunger to, to learn about this history and to, to have facts made more easily available to people is, is certainly there and it's growing. Oh, well, I think every industry has been slow to wake up to it. As I say, I was slow. I'm a Johnny come lately, really. You know, people have been banging the drum for women's football for decades, for decades, and they've been ignored, 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 ignored by people like me. Admittedly, we're just at the very tip of the iceberg. I genuinely, man, the growth that we're going to see in the next two, five, ten years mm-hmm. is going to be is going to swallow up what we the progress that we've just. We feel we've already seen. That's partly I why. Have no doubt about that. Of course, I'm, that's partly why I, I grabbed hold of it. I'm a fan of country music, and I think country music in the UK and women's football in the UK are at a similar footing, with the right amount of support, especially from the BBC, and it helps this seven million pound TV deal that can perhaps bring in some more international class players and build some more international class British players. There are. A few books about women's football, Carrie Dunn's Raw and Pride of the Lionesses, which are both great. I'm sure you've read those and met Carrie. Brilliant, yes. They, they are excellent. You know, I've met Carrie and they, they were an inspiration. And, and there, are, yeah, there, are, there are books out there and they've all inspired me. And they should be have a presence on in you know mainstream bookshops and on the shelves. Well, they're in the football um, library. There's a Gwendolyn Oxenham book, which is kind of a um, compendium of stories of women who have fought to play football at some professional level. And then there's a whole smorgasbord of player autobiographies, a lot of them written by an Americans. Here we've had Kelly Smith, Eniola Aluko, um, Hope Powell. Hope Powell. Yes. Hope Powell's is very good. Yeah. Um, Hope, yeah, they're yeah. there, you know, but they don't get, they probably don't get the publicity, but they don't get the publicity that they should get. And, and that, again, that is, you know, back to your question, I don't want, well, it's easy for me to say as a man, in some ways I feel like the, the continual gender debate puts a lot of men off of following women's football because they just feel like, oh, I, I'm going to have to listen to, to this. I just want to enjoy the football. But you can't ignore that. I mean, and again, it, it's something that I've been, you know, we toss the phrase around the 50-year ban, the 50-year ban. So that's like, so that means nothing. Think, actually, think about, think about that. You know, women were banned from playing football. I mean, it's 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 ridiculous to to say it out loud and to 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 have interviewed like Gillian Coulthard and almost see tears in her eyes. I think to, when she was relaying getting to secondary school age and being told you can't play anymore. I mean, that's something I've never had to experience as a boy, and I'm terrible at football. Terrible, right? She's brilliant and loves football. I was terrible and loved football, and there was every opportunity there for me. Imagine being a brilliant girl, and just because you're a girl, the thing you love just as much as I loved it, you can't do it. And that happened to Hope Powell as well. You know, so you, it can't help really. You know, in in a way, obviously, it's a 
it's a feminine, it's a gender equality issue because you still have people now who are who will cast aside any suggestion that women's football should be watched because it's not as good as men's. Now, if you, you could debate quality in different ways, and although it is a very good product, that we products, I don't like that word, but it's a very good standard we have now. But obviously, if you're going to watch men's, if you've only ever seen men playing in your entire life, and you mainly watch men's Premier League football, which is one of the highest standards of sport in the entire world, right? Not just one of the highest levels of football. It's got every resource it could possibly have. It's got resource to pay players £300,000 a week. It's got the resource in those academies to give 13-year-old boys greater support than some of our very, very, very best senior fe- you know, female proper women, actual women, playing at a professional level, get less support than some of those clubs than 13-year-old boys get at the top academies, right? So, obviously, if you ban women from playing for 50 years, and then even when you overturn the ban, you don't welcome them. And we've only had professional players for three years. We've only had goalkeeping coaches for three years. Yeah. Then, obviously, it's not going to look as good. I mean, it's not going to be as good. Well, I, don't, I don't shy away from saying that. How could it possibly be? Well, I mean, it's amazing that it's as good as it is. Every single woman, and again, it goes back to the FA Cup book, you know, quite rightly, we, we, we think of the male legends that we have seen and revered throughout my life. And I don't want to detract anything from what they've achieved. That's a special part of my childhood, watching those cup finals. But any woman who's even had the, got to the point where they step over the white line to play in a women's FA Cup final has achieved more. It's just, it's just true. It's just, I mean, I spoke to Leslie Lloyd, the, the winner of the, the captain who won the first FA Cup. Southampton in 1971 and she said you know people would actually come and watch them respectfully when they were playing training on the common as they had to in the park there were a gaggle there who would just come to laugh at them and think of them as strange and think what the hell what, what are you women doing playing football and they just they didn't care they weren't going to let that bother them they loved football they were going to play it Sue Bucket who taught herself to be a goalkeeper because there was no one to train her so she got Bob Wilson's manual he won the double in 1971 with Arsenal and she taught herself how to how to be a goalkeeper. And she, she I mean, I spoke to her. I was like, look, do you, you know, the sexism back there must have been rife. And her attitude was, I don't care about that. I, I, loved, I loved playing. I loved the game. I wasn't going to let that bother me. And that's what, what a great attitude to have. But I think not, not everyone has that mental resilience. I don't have that mental resilience. And think of the, think of the girls and women who have been lost to the sport. Yeah. Because they, they were put off by that. Understandably, right? And, and they were put off by the, the fact that they couldn't find a team. But more, more importantly, there was no team on their doorsteps. I mean, uh, Gillian Coulthard says if it, she had to stop playing because she was too old to play with the boys at school, she was lucky that on her doorstep was Donnie Bell's women's team. So as a 13-year-old, she goes and starts playing for a women's team. Now, if she hadn't had a women's team close to her, that would have been it for her. I mean, what you'd have lost, an exceptionally talented footballer just because she's a girl. And that happened to probably thousands Gosh. over decades. So this book is uh, what sad. Fun. Yeah. But this book's not about that, actually. And you could write probably a far better book about that. I mean, you, I wanted this just to really... I mean, there, there's there's colour in there. There's human interest in there. It touches on some of these issues. But what I, what I wanted it to be is... I mean, I've got a book in... A hardback book that I probably got in the early 90s that has a match report on every men's FA Cup final 
and the team lineups and the scorers. And I wanted this to be like that. This is paperback. It's not in colour, but it has all of the facts that we are. Well, we've been able to confirm the scorers for the very first time. And we, we're the first people to publish that. We brought that together in one place for the first time. We put it on a website called womensfacup.co.uk as well. Within days, that information is on Wikipedia, which I'm, I'm delighted about. I knew it would be. Um, because I, you know, Wikipedia is just amazing the way that it works. But the gaps on there two weeks ago were were immense. You know, lots of finals didn't even have scorers. So what we confirmed for the very first time is the scorers in every women's FA Cup final. As far as possible, we've confirmed the starting lineups. But for many of the early ones, we've had to go off match programs, which, as you well know, is not a confirmation of who started, it's a confirmation of who's likely to start. Mm-hmm. And if any more accurate stuff comes along, we'll update the, the future um, editions, but we are as accurate as we can be right now. I'm so looking forward to reading it. It will take its place on the shelves of the library alongside Stephen Lawther's latest book called Arrival, which touches on a lot of themes that you've touched on in the conversation so far about the 50-year ban, about players emerging until about 2000, and then the coaches taking over and putting some sort of squad together, and then you get the money. With England, we're behind the States about 10 years, so it's no surprise that the States won the World Cup last time. But the FA are really getting behind the women's game, and there is a pathway to success because of um, this tournament, the FA Cup. We are, we've had 50. The 51st will be in December, so you may notice a, you might want to get a reprint for autumn so you've got copies we're actually speaking just before the round of 16 um can you pick a winner out of these 16 or is that a fool's errand well i think it will likely be chelsea or man city again obviously chelsea might be going for the quadruples they've won two or two of the four prizes already the wsl title and the continental cup and perhaps they will win the champions league this sunday and um obviously they they're Round five tie is going to be delayed because it would have been on Sunday when they're playing Barcelona in the Champions League final. So they will play Everton next week. Now, Everton knocked them out last season in the quarterfinals. I just imagine that if Chelsea were to lose at the weekend, perhaps it would be such a blow that you might give Everton a bit of a chance. But I think if, if Chelsea win, I think they'll be on such a high. And I think they'll be so determined to go on and complete this quadruple, repeat what Arsenal did in 2007, that I would back them to beat Everton. I think you know, Man City have obviously won the last two. The two top sides, a bit of a bit of a distance really opened up between them and Arsenal, didn't it, this year? It, it, this season was funny because in a way we saw Manchester United turn the big three into a big four. But in a way we also, I think, in the end saw Chelsea and Man City pull a bit further away from Arsenal. And that's the fear that, that is it going to become a duopoly? I think it would be, obviously, you'd give Arsenal a chance, you'd give Manchester United a chance, but I think it's probably going to be Manchester City or, yeah. or Chelsea Again, who will end up winning that. They're so far ahead. I'm going to be talking to Tom Gary about the season just gone and the, the next season. And, oh, look, here's a book, The Women's Football Yearbook, which you wrote with Tom's help. Um, I picked it up in foils on Charing Cross Road at the weekend. Uh, The introduction, which has a lovely picture of Emma Hayes in it, says that every game matters to someone. Well, not every book matters to someone. Tell me about the agonies of trying to get the first edition put out. Do you know, that is the first time I've ever heard of anyone find that 
yearbook in a bookshop. So I'm intrigued. Which so that's the latest edition, is it? The twenty 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 one. I think I saw the eighteen nineteen edition. Well, it's still the first time I've I've ever heard of someone discovering that that book in a, in a bookshop. And as I mentioned earlier, you know what I'm continually told is that people are not going to buy women's sports books. So the fact that you saw it there gives me hope that perhaps it is gaining traction. Yes, it's been, again, it's because I love these kind of books and I love, yeah, every game matters to someone. So that harks back to me and my childhood, really, and that I was a terrible footballer. But to me, even playing for my school C team, and I can still remember, or even playing for my university halls of residence, I can remember those games and they meant something and still mean something to me. And even if you are playing on the park and there's just two or three people watching, it's an experience that you share. And I've always loved the idea matches are recorded. Now, football's my love, but obviously it happens in cricket with wisdom, which is amazing. And you know, there's Olympic record books where everything gets written down and it means something that's there forever. And so over the years, I always bought what was the Rothmans when I was a kid, the football year, but sponsored by Rothmans until cigarette sponsorship became illegal. Oh, and at that that's point, why Sky spon- took it over, I see. Sky took over, and then more recently, the Sun took it over. Mm. And yeah, it did hit me in 2017 when I thought I sh- really should explore women's football more, but there'd never been a book like that. Um, and I looked into it, and I, I'm sure there's never been one. And if anyone knows differently, let me know. But in the four years since, I've not discovered there's ever been one. And I wanted to set out a way of helping people find out a little bit more about the clubs that might exist around them. So it was hugely ambitious. Uh, I called upon Tom because we've worked together briefly at the BBC and his role there was specifically working on women's football at that time. Whereas I have a kind of broader brief working on lots of sport within London, BBC London. And so I wanted someone immersed, fully immersed in the game. So we set about bringing that book together and um, we managed to get four editions out. So the fourth came out last summer. Um, yeah, it's been it's been very hard. Uh, lots of barriers in the way and lots of doubts about whether maybe this is the book that people whether people do want this kind of book about women's football. And those are debates I have with myself on a daily basis. I do feel it's important. I mean, what we still have even in, I think this might change next season with this higher profile, but even now finding the most basic stats about play, even WSL players is very, very difficult. Any journalist who works on the game or I commentate at the weekends on the FA player, finding accurate information out there isn't easy. Now, I bring that accurate information together on a yearly basis in the book. And I think that's great to have for posterity. And um, I I feel like people also need a weekly resource um, to be able to rely upon. I I, I sense that Opta are going to opt to do the WSL, but I think anyone, I'm sure they would agree too, it's not as accurate as their men's coverage, which is faultless as far as I can see. They never get anything wrong in the men's game. And I'm sure it's because they have greater resources. I'm not in any way having a pop at them because every, you know, the BBC doesn't have as, doesn't direct as many resources towards women's football as it does to men's. No, nowhere does, right? So 
but that is part of the problem in that when you when you need this accurate information it isn't there now i played a very small part of the yearbook improving that situation i hope and i'm confident i have but it's impossible to do it on this kind of scale you need you need the kind of people power of something like opta really to track every game and every player to to bring something together that's going to be useful to the growing number of people wanting to follow this every single week um, and there is a demand for that and I think slowly clubs are waking up to that the mainstream media is waking up to that and then you'll get that you'll get that extra resource which will help people to to improve those areas of the game but yeah the book itself has been really really tough it's been very hard to find a publisher legends have been brilliant I have to sing their praises for they make beautiful books about football mainly in colour just beautifully presented and for them to take this on is a big challenge for them because formatting these kind of books it's not like a written book you know write, if you write a book and you're just printing written pages that's fine but when you've got tables and photos it's a different level when it comes to formatting and designing and, and a different cost when it comes to that and to printing so it's, it's a task for anyone to take on and, and legends have done amazing putting three of the four together and designing them so beautifully and I'm very grateful to them Do you still that. split the royalties with a fund that goes towards amateurs and semi-professionals as you did with the first one that was published with legends in 2019? Yes, yeah, so I've done that every year and the most recent one I will give away 100% of any royalties I receive. Wow. 50% will go to the NHS because I, well, we all owe them so much, but I underwent um, open heart surgery last Oof. summer. Gosh. I, they were, and I'm fine, I'm, I'm good. Um, it was a condition I was born with. I always knew one day something would have to happen. And I'm so grateful and so lucky that I was able to have that during the pandemic. And 50% will go to women's grassroots well i say grassroots non-elite non-professional football that has gone to sponsor players at Millwall lionesses for example or at uh, watford mm. um and it, it will kind of be I'll, I'll have to take a look on kind of what is there it's not a lot i have to admit you know it's not a lot we don't make we barely make any money at all from this book um but what we do make we've well, we've, we've given away more than we've made, I'll be completely honest. Myself and Tom, we've not made any money from this book, from these books. And I, I, I have no shame in admitting that. So we've ended up giving away, accruing some of our costs back in those royalties. We've, we've just given it away. But I feel, again, it's like it's... I'm grateful to so, so many people help with this book. You know, every single club I have to ask volunteers there to help me with the information now to them they're trying to do a million other things at the same time just to keep their club alive just to get bibs and balls and cones and shirts and the last thing they really need is me popping up to say oh, can you just clarify who who scored in the 79th minute when they scored because yeah. um this website says one thing your twitter feed says another thing called on a lot of people for help and it's opened my eyes to Again, I mean, it goes back to why there aren't accurate records of FA Cup finals that took place in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, people might be annoyed with the WFA for not keeping a, a greater hold on their records. Well, they were just trying to provide an opportunity for women to play. They had enough hurdles. You know, this is a, a group of people just trying to get a foothold for 
women in the national game. It was also a pre-internet era when we're talking about that. So keeping records is not going to be a priority. And obviously that's not a priority now for clubs, certainly outside of the WSL. So it opened my eyes to how much these clubs need support. And if we could help in some small way, kind of channeling those royalties back into the game seemed to make sense. You know, it's not a big deal as such, but everything counts at that level. Again, it has just made me think about how little resource there is out there for Mm -hmm. girls and women who love this sport. It it will change. Uh, Just before we break for half-time, because second half, I do want to talk about your uh, writing career, writing about Tottenham. Uh, There are four eras of the Women's FA Cup, which you've written about, along with the great Patricia Gregory, in A History of the Women's FA Cup Final, uh, which just came out, came out last week, right? Yeah, uh, ahead of that 50th anniversary of the first final, which was on Sunday the 9th. We've had lots of great feedback. Again, it just makes me feel proud to have played a small part. Mm-hmm. You know, players of the 70s and 80s who Patricia is still in touch with, I've been in touch with her to say, wow, it's great to see, you know, My and name they in print. And, yeah. I, and, and I feel, that, as I say, I, I feel the same if someone did that with my school C team. And these women played in the FA Cup final, you know, the greatest, the greatest event in cup, well, the greatest cup competition in this country, the FA Cup. And the, the female equivalent of it was given no support and no publicity. But they played, they got to the highest level you were allowed to get to as a woman. Instantly, I thought, why on earth are there teams from Scotland in the FA Cup final? This was Southampton's era. Why were Southampton streets ahead of everyone else, briefly? There was a little bit of controversy around the first final in that um, Stuart and Thistle and Elsie Cook, who was manager, uh, is still upset about that now, even 50 years on, that they suspected, and in fact, in the end, the WFA agreed, that Southampton drew their team from an entire league the Hampshire League, Stewarton and the other teams who were in the third and fourth place playoff because they played a third and fourth place playoff before the final at the same venue for the first 11 or 12 years of the competition. And the three other teams that day considered boycotting and not travelling to London, to Crystal Palace Athletic Stadium, in protest. Now, in the end, they did. Stewarton Thistle lost 4-1 to Southampton. The WFA later did find Southampton to be guilty of misrepresentation and fined them £25. But they were still the champions and they were still allowed to keep that cup. Mm. So I suspect I suspect that that is why they had such a strong team because they drew it from a wider area. But, you know, from then on, it was certainly a legitimate team and they won eight of the first 11 finals. Um, and in some ways, I think we have to kind of accept that bringing bringing any any club or any team together in those very early years would not have been easy, and, and there would have been kind of a, I don't know a bit of a a less formal approach to doing it. Certainly, them obviously in a, in a heavily professionalised men's game that has been professional for well over a century. So I, I kind of give them the benefit of the doubt on that. But obviously, you know, Scottish teams competed in the first um, men's FA Cups yeah. as well. Yeah. Queen's Park. With the women's game, it was because you, you needed you needed teams. You know, the women hadn't been allowed to play for 50 years. And so to kind of open it up to, to Wales and to Scotland as well uh, made sense because it, it gave you a bigger opportunity to find strong teams. 
they played in geographical groups to start with, and then obviously it may even have been just the just that finals day actually that was non-regionalised. My research for the book has really been all about the final, and I do want to in the future look more about the earlier rounds of the competitions as too. Um, but I'm a little bit sketchy on the kind of previous rounds um, ahead of the final. But I know it was certainly geographical to start with. I'm not sure at which region, at which stage it opened up. That would be account for why Southampton was so strong. Um, but Stewarton, they, they got to the, the following year's final. They lost again. They were called Lee's Ladies that time because they were sponsored by a confectionery company called Lee's Limited. And they are today Kilmarnock Ladies. Oh. Or Kilmarnock Women. Kilmarnock Women. I got in touch with Kilmarnock and I said, do you consider them to be you, your club, their, their history to be yours? And yes, they do. And I think that's brilliant. They're aware of it. They celebrate it. They are, Kilmarnock are the FA Cup runners-up under a different name in 1971 and 1972. And I, I, I love the fact that they are a vessel, a modern existing vessel through which this history can still be lived. And a lot of those teams have fallen by the wayside, like Foden's who won in 1974. They were the first team ever to beat Southampton in the Women's FA Cup because Southampton won the first three and then got to the final. So their first ever defeat, Southampton, was in the 1974 final to Foden's, who were a works team from a lorry manufacturers, who eventually that company, I think, became Leyland. They don't exist anymore, Foden's. There's other clubs like Lowestoft who got to the final in 79 and lost to Southampton, but then won it in 82. They don't exist anymore, and that's a real shame. Uh, Norwich, who won it in 1986, were not formally affiliated to Norwich City, and Norwich City do have a women's team now, but I don't think it would quite be right for them to claim the history, although I'd I'd be in favour of it if they did really, because again, it would be a way of preserving that history. QPR women, who won it in 77, QPR have come and gone so many times over the years. Again, you can't really say they are direct ancestors of the current QPR women. But again, I think no one else would have a better claim than the current QPR women. And I think they should be kind of allowed to embrace it and celebrate it. I'd love to see these clubs do it. Mm. I'd like to start a campaign. Let's do it here on your show. That Norwich City can embrace Norwich's win of 86, that QPR women who are in the fifth tier today, can embrace QPR women's 1977 win. Um, that Leyland, if they have a, a women's works team now, can have Foden's title. Obviously, I, I can't do that. We need, we need the players to be happy about it. I have no right to uh, kind of hand that history over. But I think it would be nice to find a way to preserve those achievements. And although because women's football has been so poorly resourced, Obviously, clubs have come and gone, come and gone, come and gone. It's very hard to trace a direct bloodline, which is very easy in the men's game because it's been a professional game for centuries. Those clubs have existed as professional entities, as companies that have usually found a way to survive. Obviously, more recently, we've seen these very sad examples of the likes of Berry. Uh, obviously, we saw what happened to Wimbledon. And in, in, uh, in those areas, it does become a little bit harder um, to kind of establish where the bloodline is. But it's usually very easy in the men's game. Obviously, the, the Tottenham of now, the Tottenham of who won it in 1901, etc. And that, you know, most of that's very straightforward. It's a lot harder to do that in women's football. But I, I feel that if we could find the most direct 
existing kind of relative to those former clubs. It would be great to kind of give them a trophy or a replica or, or a star on the shirt to say, you know, what they did back then still matters now. I hope so. I hope someone at the, the FA is listening. Between 1982 and 1994, Donny Bells, Doncaster Bells, competed in 11 FA Cup finals and won six. The season after, uh, in 94-95, the great Pete Davis wrote a book called I Lost My Heart to the Bells, which I didn't know existed until I picked it up for £2 in a charity shop. Uh, I turn to the back where it lists the senior players. It tells me that Gillian Coulthard was the midfielder, factory worker and captain, and her nickname was... Oh, I don't know. I don't know her nickname. I'm learning from you. Ah, what was well, her nickname? Sprout. Sprout. Gillian ah, Sprout Coulthard. Uh, likewise, the ah. sweeper Michelle Mickey Jackson and um, Claire Des Utley who was a schoolgirl, that's oh, what it says. I need to get that book, and I need you to send me a bibliography of all the women's football books you're aware of, because you are aware of more than me, ah. um, and I'd like, I'd like to read them all, because I've not heard of that one. Well, I will, well, fortunately for you, it's in the football library. Uh, I will send it to you or make sure that I get this to you. I haven't Brilliant. read it properly yet, um, because it's been on the list. Uh, I have, I'm surrounded by football books in this library. Roy Keane is on the door, uh, vetting people. Johnny Nicholson is on the front desk um, because that's the place for him. That's his dream job as a head librarian. Uh, and then all kinds of programmes, all kinds of books, posters, videos. But I don't know that much about Donny Bells, except the other year when they were demoted, there was a bit of brouhaha. What were your feelings on the um, promotion of Manchester United women uh, and Donny Bells' demotion? But yeah, as a fan, I think it's really, really, really sad. As a fan of football, I'm not, I'm not Don Casabell's fan as such. As a, I mean, this is this is a really tricky area because of the wider gender debate. Now, the FA, I mean, it wouldn't admit this, but it's clear the FA has got a greater need to grow women's football and give as many women as possible an opportunity to have a professional career than it does to run a meritocratical can't pronounce that right. Meritocratic. Now, as a football fan, everything that happens with Manchester United sticks in the craw. I don't think it's right at all. But if you're looking to grow a game at a rate to make up for, well, 100 years, really, of neglect, then who's got a better chance of of giving women a career in football? Manchester United or Doncaster Rovers Bells, as they are now? Mm. Yeovil Town, Yeovil United, as they are now? Well, I think they're just changing again, aren't they, to Bridgewater? Oxford United, Watford, Sunderland, they were all, when I started writing the Women's Football Yearbook, they were within the top two divisions. And I loved it because it had a different tapestry and a different feel, different texture rather, to the men's game. But very, very quickly, just within those four years, we were getting a mirror image now of men's football with clubs like Tottenham, who have won their place on merit, though it should be said, with promotions on the pitch. Uh, West Ham, who were catapulted up two divisions, Manchester United, who were placed directly into the championship, having not existed for over a decade. Those clubs have got a far better chance of, of giving women a chance to play professionally. So that's why it happened. But yeah, what, what has happened there with, with Doncaster Rovers Bells, I think is it's heartbreaking on a, on a fan perspective, on a history perspective, because you've got a club that their history in the FA Cup, I mean, there's three great sides, Southampton, 
Doncaster Bows and Arsenal. Vic Akers FC. Had, yeah, Vic Akers FC. And they've all had periods of dominance in, in over the years. And I don't know if we'll ever see that level of dominance by one club again. And to think that Doncaster Rovers Bells are now in the fourth tier were kind of just swept aside despite being, well, one of the clubs who helps carry the game to where it is now. You know, we wouldn't have these cup finals at Wembley in front of 40,000 fans and 2 million viewers on the BBC. We wouldn't have a fully professional WSL if the likes of Gillian Coulthard and those teammates you mentioned and Sheila Edmonds, who helped found that club in 1969, if they hadn't did what they did throughout the 70s and 80s and 90s and beyond, it's harsh and it's unfair. And it's on a football perspective, it, it, it's not the way the game should be run, I don't think. I think everything should be about what you achieve on the pitch. But I can also see why there is this overriding need to, to be able to support and fund women's football and why you need these mega-rich men's clubs um, to play a part in doing that. And I don't know what the answer is. One of those rich clubs in Liverpool, I noticed, and not enough people noticed last year, there was a big discrepancy between, woo, Liverpool men win the league, and what is going on with the women? You, you were working on the yearbook as well as this FA Cup book. Have Liv- I don't think Liverpool have won the FA Cup, have they? No, so they've been uh, runners-up three times in a row. So they are three times in total and all in a row. Uh, the first of those, they were known as Nosley United. And that was the first final ever shown live on TV. Sky Sports showed it as part of their build-up to um, their Super Sunday offering of Blackburn, who were going for the title that year, nice. but missed out to Manchester United against QPR. And um, so Andy Gray and Richard Keyes were live at um, Ewood Park for that Premiership, as it was then called, Premiership game. They crossed to Glamford Park, Scunthorpe, where Doncaster Bells were playing Nosley United. And Doncaster Bells won 1-0. Karen Walker, the great Karen Walker, brilliant goal scorer, who a couple of years before had scored a hat-trick in every single round of the FA Cup, including the final. She scored the only goal, towering header from a corner. And um, so Doncaster won it. Nosley United lost 1-0, but within months they had changed their name to Liverpool. They lost a thrilling final the following year, 3-2 to Arsenal, with Marianne Spacey scoring a brilliant winner. And then they lost probably in the cruelest fashion we have ever seen in a women's FA Cup final in 1996 to Hope Powell was captain, Debbie Bampton was player manager. And it was one all and it went to penalties. And this is probably my favourite story in the Women's FA Cup because it's heartbreaking. Um, Liverpool brought on Gail Formston specifically to take a penalty. She'd scored the winner in the semi-finals against Arsenal and she was brought off the bench just to take a penalty in the shootout. And her very, very first touch happened to be the penalty that she had to score oh, no. to keep Liverpool in it. And she put it over the bar and they lost. And there's an amazing photo in a book by Pete Oliver, who took the photo and bought out a book of um, book of sports photos. And I think it's one of my favourite sports photos of all time, along with the famous Diego Maradona uh, against Belgium photo, where he appears to be taking on the entire Belgian mm, yes, team. Yes, five of them. And, yeah. and the photo from when uh, England won the Commonwealth Games netball gold medal a few years back, which was just, I just thought, amazing how it encapsulated 
the joy on all of those players' faces. But yeah, Gale in this photo is just stood head in hands, shell shocked, with her teammates in the centre circle slumped there behind her. And I interviewed her, and she said if that photo had been taken half an hour later, she'd still have been standing there. She was so distraught at what happened. And she credits Lou Cooper, the Croydon goalkeeper, because Lou would stand just off centre. And Gail said she knew what she was going to do, but at the last minute she noticed that Lou Cooper um, was standing off centre and it made her think twice and she blazed it over the bar. Liverpool actually missed three penalties. Now, Lou didn't save any, they were all missed. But that tactic of standing off centre seems to have really played a part. And it's not just my favourite story because it encapsulates the despair, which sounds pretty bleak, but let's face it, it's those strength of feelings which why we love football. But also Lou, the way Lou describes winning, and she says they'd lost track of the penalty. She had to check with the referee, have we won? And when the referee said yes, she said she just ran and ran and ran and ran towards her parents in the crowd. And she just couldn't believe that they'd done it. And she let me use a photo in the book of her and her mum on the... They had a bus parade, Croydon, because they'd won the double. And uh, a photo of her and her mum, and she says that's the proudest moment of her career. And her mum sadly passed away not long after. And it just sums up everything that final um, about why you will get exactly the same emotions in women's football as men. So when it comes to this quality debate, I don't follow football for its quality. Most of it, most men's football is not very good. Obviously, the bottom half of the Premier League is not as good as the top half. The Championship is not as good as the Premier League. One and League Two are not as good as the Championship. Non-league football is not as good as League One and League Two. I love all of them because you get the emotion and you get the drama there, and you get the strength of feeling and the passion. And obviously, that's all there in every single women's match as well, because it means just as much to the players. This is why, again, I wanted the book to bring out those stories, finals that we, you know, we've all read so much, and I don't tire of it, but we know about Dave Besson's penalty save. We know about Ricky V has won the goal. We know about Sunderland shocking Leeds. We know about Southampton shocking Manchester United, West Ham shocking Arsenal, Steven Gerrard, bringing Liverpool back from the brink against West Ham. Right, those stories are all there in the women's game, these incredible finals, incredible feats by players. None of us have really had the time or had the chance to explore it because it's not been there for us to explore. And I hope that the book that myself and Patricia have put together with the help of so many others is going to be a starting point, really, because probably every one of those finals could have a book of its own.